0: I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and this morning, uh, Lord willing, we have arrived at the final message of chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and this morning we will be dealing with this final characteristic, dealing with this subsection entitled, The Dignity of Christ, and looking at His immutability, His immutability. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, as we continue this uh, exposition here of this first chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse number 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment." And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs to salvation? Specifically this morning, I want you to mark a couple of statements in verses 10 and 12 or 10 through 12. First of all we see there in verse number 11 we see the phrase but thou remainest but thou remainest and we see in verse number 12 but thou art the same and then we see at the end of verse 12 thy years shall not fail we're looking at not only the worthiness of Christ and this dignity that we have identified over these last few weeks, but we find this other characteristic that makes him worthy of our worship. It makes him worthy of our worship because he is, in fact, immutable. To be immutable means to be unchanging. It means to be the same. Uh, It has been said that every single second of every day, even a human being is changing. You are changing literally every second. You are not what you were 10 seconds ago. It has also been stated that every time a man steps into a river or a moving body of water, he is never stepping into the same body of water, again, because the water is always moving past them. It's always changed. It's always different. The consistency of the water is different. What's, it's, what minerals, what chemicals, what's in there, it's never the same. If you go to the same river two or three times in a week, each time that river is going to be different. But yet when you come to the reality of who God is, when you come to the reality of who Christ is, he says that he is always the same. It is almost unattainable to our minds to consider something that is unchangeable. Because everything changes. Uh, We are all different people. Uh, we, again, not just in our body chemistry, but we are different even in our personalities. You are not what you once were. Uh, some of us, it was for the better, and some it was for the worse, or vice versa. I don't know what the case is for you. In some cases, maybe it's for the worse. But we are changing. We are different. And we have, we have to stop and consider for a moment, uh, what are the implications if God was a changing God? What if the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament? What are the implications of that? What what if we were dealing with a God who was not the same? What if we were dealing with a God who was one day worthy of our worship, but does something the next day to make him unworthy of our worship? The reality is, even in the physical temporal realm, everything around us is subject to and as a result is always changing. Uh, I'm, I am a sentimental guy. Uh, I look at things and I constantly look at what I consider to be when things were just better, when things were just different. Uh, I I look back with a great sense of, and I'm not always right, because history sometimes clouds our vision as to what was really happening. But there are many times I say in my family, I say in my life, I say, you know, if we could go back to such and such year, that's when it was really, really good. I really enjoyed that age, or I really enjoyed what was going on there. It was just a better time. But the reality is, is, everything has changed, Everything about that point in time that I'm referring to, no matter what aspect you pick out, has changed. The people involved in that have changed. The circumstances in life have changed. Things are not the same as what they were, so that even if we could go back to that point in time, we would find it differently. Same thing is true with God. If we had a God who was changing, and had a God who was continually never the same, we would never know how to approach him, or we would find ourselves in a sentimental way saying, you know, I wanna go back to the way God used to be. God is always the same. Christ is always the same. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And what the writer here in Hebrews deal with these verses, in verses 10 through 14, he begins by stating the role that God plays in the very creation of everything. You'll notice the first verse there in verse 10, he says, and now Lord in the beginning has laid the foundations of the earth. Now remember the person or the individual being addressed here is God the Father speaking to the Son. And so we know that creation all the way back in Genesis that the Bible says, let us make man in our own image. Jesus Christ was as much a part of creation as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not just come on the scene later, he was part of the creation story. When were those heavens created? When was the foundation of the world created? And that was before the foundation of the world. As a matter of fact, he has laid the foundations. So the words are a continuation of speech that the Father is speaking towards the Son. Now, like many of these passages have been over the past few weeks, this is not a random statement. He is quoting Psalm 102. So if you'd like to turn back to the 102nd Psalm, we will see this is what the writer of Hebrews in this passage is quoting from. Again, comparing Scripture with Scripture is the best way to interpret the Bible, what its meaning is, uh, what the intent is. And Psalm 102, uh, we're going to be referencing this uh, psalm a number of times during the sermon this morning. But Psalm 102, let's just look at verse 25. The psalmist here writes, "...of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth." and the heavens are the work of thy hands. Go down to verse number 26. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. So the psalmist, the psalm writer in Psalm 102 was referencing and talking about this foundation of the world and creation. The author of Hebrews now is quoting Psalm 102, and he's mentioning the reality of the Lord's doing in this creation. He even uses the terms of of, of God. He he acknowledges that it it is God who is the very source of the beginning. For from the very beginning, it was God who has established this foundation. Uh, not, only the cre- not only the creatures, but the creation itself. The heavens, the earth, all were part of Christ's eternal being. Christ has always been. And he has no beginning. Um, I was telling some of the students on this Past Friday, we were talking about the birth of Jesus and how we cannot look at Jesus Christ as having his beginning date uh, on, his, on the incarnation when he, he came as a baby in a manger. That is not Jesus's beginning. He did not start then. He's always been. And you could see these fifth graders trying to get this understanding and think, how can something have always been? Because I said, look, everybody in this room has a birth date. Jesus Christ does not have a birth date. And I, I undid a lot of things sadly but I told them December 25th is not Jesus's quote unquote birth date in the sense of what we think about. Yes, that's, the, that's what we recognize as an incarnation, which is another whole story. It most likely wasn't December 25th, but that's for another time. But He did not get His beginning there. He's always been. And so we have this eternality of Christ as part of the Creator of the earth. And this gives us one major implication. If He was the Creator of the earth or part of that creation, then that means He had to exist before the foundation of the world. Which completely refutes the notion that some believe that this world has always been here. The world, the earth, is not eternal. It has not always been here. And it did not get here out of some random explosion. It is the work of the hands, literally what it says, the heavens are the work of thine hands, not just the earth, but the entirety of everything, in space, anything that you can think about, any, anything uh, one of these new space ventures finds. Okay, this fascination now with going to space, the fascination with going to Mars. I, I don't fully get it, but here's what here's what they're doing. Uh, they're going to find things. And God created them. God created them. They're going to say, no, this, was, this arose out of a, an explosion of a star or this... God created the heavens, all of the heavens. They are the work of His hands. They have not always been here, but yet Christ is eternal. Christ has always been here. And because He has always been here, the writer of Hebrews also identifies that there must have been creation must have been done by an all-wise creator. There was never a second guess to what was being created. Uh, We've all created something with our hands, and it didn't turn out quite the way we expected it to. Uh, If you're not very handy with your hands, like I am not, you find that your creation in here does not always match what your hands produce. You know what it's supposed to be. You know how it should look, how it should function. I have created some great things in this mind of mine. I have created some things. If I could put the, the work to it and create it, I know it would revolutionize the world. But the problem is I cannot get it from here to here. Yet there's never been an idea in God's mind that said, okay, I, have, I did not think this through. But there is one thing about it. God will never change, but he does say that the things in which he has created are going to undergo a change. There's a big difference there. God created things that were changeable, but he himself is unchanging. That is also a mind-blowing concept. Because again, if, even if I could get my mind, to get my hands to create what's in my mind, whatever I created would still go through changes. I have no way of being able to prevent those changes because I'm changing, yet God, who is unchangeable, says that this earth, the world, the heavens, they will undergo a change. We saw that in Psalm 102. Again, where he is he's saying that there will be a change. If you go back earlier in that psalm, uh, go back to uh, Psalm 102 in verse 12, I want you to see another picture here. This entire psalm is filled with uh, the, the creation. But in verse number 12, the psalmist says, "...but thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever." and thy remembrance unto all generations. Uh, you see here that there is this, he endures and there will be a remembrance unto every generation to follow. If you drop down to verse 24, I said, "O oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. So we know that God has No end. So now we have this real quandary of a God who has no beginning and he has no end. Yet he has created a changeable universe. He has created things that are changing, but he himself is unchanging. The very same creator God who before the foundation of the world created. Something from nothing is exactly the same as he was when he created it. He hasn't changed a single bit. None of us can even claim that. We've changed since we got up this morning. We have, we have gone undergone the process where something has changed and something is different. Our world has changed since we got up this morning. Now, we often point to major events in, in, in history and say, now, this is when life changed. We heard that, especially over the last week or so with the remembrance of September 11th, that we, you hear it said, this is when America changed. This is when things, we've been changing. We change daily. The earth is changing. The world is changing. The heavens are changing. They are all changeable creations. But the sense here is that this eternality of Christ, who exists before the foundation of the world, also the writer points out here that the heavens are the works of thine hands and he has no years to him. If someone is to say, how old is God? There is no answer. He's eternal. I asked how old you are and some of you say you have a right to ask me that. I understand. But you have an age to you. You are a specific age. But yet, He has no age. The works of His hands, all the way back to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God, the immediate work of, a, of the Godhead, part the immediate work of Christ Himself, The world was created, the heavens were created, not by the angels, not by some other means, but they were created by God Himself. The angels did not exist before God created them. Angels are not eternal beings. You say, what does all this have to do with my walk with God? It has everything to do with your walk with God. This idea of understanding the order in which The worthiness of Christ is being brought to the forefront. This is another one of those characteristics that makes Him alone worthy of our worship, is this idea that He is immutable. The works of His hands, very expressive. Uh, Let's also understand that God did not create the angels because He was in need of them. God did not create the angels nor us because He was needing help. Think about that for a moment. There are people that think God needs their help. God does not need our help in any way, shape, or form. No matter how good of a Christian you are, He doesn't need your help. He didn't create the angels because He was overwhelmed by what creation was going to bring. Imagine how easily you and I get overwhelmed with life. And just be honest with yourself this morning. How much does it take for you to be overwhelmed with life? Not very much, if you really look at it. God didn't order anything else because he needed help. He didn't order our creation because he needed help. Now, it's interesting that in the creation of man, he did say that man needed a helpmeet. Very fascinating when he talks about Adam and Eve, that he clearly declares that Adam needed a help. So we see that the works of his hands, of course, tell us about the eternality of God, but also the wisdom of this creation. But the the creation was not because he needed help or needed something, but the creation would be expressive of the power of Christ and his wisdom in creating them. The heavens are a display of God's glory. The whole earth sets forth the dignity of Christ. The whole universe sets forth the dignity of Christ. The only thing I could ever think of is if I ever went up in one of those rockets, especially now, because this one group just got back that was all civilians. Imagine this. Years ago, you had to go through years and years and years of NASA training to even get on one of those rockets. Four people got on a rocket, unmanned as far as a, a pilot, trusted the control people on the ground to send them up into space they sat on top of a rocket and there's a level of i think faith there but the only thing i ever thought of if i ever had the opportunity to go in one of those rockets that the minute that you hit between the difference between the earth's atmosphere and got into space is you would have to think boy this must be the face of god because the creation would be so immense and the view would be so powerful that every believer is going to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Not look at the glory of the space, look at the stars. When you stand out on a a cloudless night and you can get away from all the lights of the city and you can just look and say, you don't stand there and say, wow, what wonderful constellations. You say, there's the hand of God. Yesterday, In the middle of the afternoon, five thirty in the afternoon, it had not been raining. We're out in the, we go out to the, out to the trunk of the car, bringing some, some groceries in, and the girls say, "Look over there, and there's a rainbow in the sky." Now, this is maybe you've seen this before, but this was amazing to me because it had not been raining. There was, there was not a storm cloud in the sky, and here's even more amazing: you could see the purple band. Now, if you know anything about rainbows, you don't always see that purple band. I said, wait a minute. I thought these rainbows could only come if there was rain. No, they come when God puts them there. (laughs) And I said, that's the most amazing. And this wasn't just a little thing. This was the the whole thing. And it's like, wow, this this is the hand of God right there. That's not a work of science. That's not a work of nature. That's not Mother Nature trying to get in communication with us. That's God. That same rainbow that has been perverted and corrupted by people is one of the great promises that we have and displays God's glory. But it also reminds me of his unchangingness. That that rainbow has been the same since the foundation of the world. Sometimes, like yesterday, you just get the opportunity where you see part of it that maybe you don't see all the time. But what what a sight. So, this heaven's declaring the works of thine hands. Now, notice as he goes on, as beautiful as this picture is, look what he says about them. They shall perish. Now, the immediate context is what is the they? He's talking about the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, they will perish. Now, I believe scripturally he's not referring to a complete doing away with the substance of them. But what he is talking about is to the nature of the quality of them. Now, what do, I, what, what do we mean by that? The present form and fashion of this world and the present form and fashion of the universe, the way it is now, has one single problem. It's corrupted by sin. The substance of the world, even though God created it, it has been corrupted by man. This present way, this present form will pass away. Remember, there's a curse. There's a curse upon the very ground of this earth. That's why when you go out every day and you have to deal with those thorns and thistles and weeds and you've got to work by the sweat of your brow, every weed I pull in my yard, I say that's the result of man's fall. That's the result of sin. Every single one of them is a reminder that this world, this earth is corrupt. And yet it says they, it they shall perish. They will be renewed. It will be purified. The substance of it will continue because one day there is a place when we will be with him and he will be with us. So he tells us that even the very earth that he created, even though the beauty of what I saw yesterday in that rainbow, the substance and the quality of what we look at and see every day is going to change. Which leads him to make the statement, but thou remainest. To remain has the The concept, the principle of being eternal, exactly the same. To remain here means to be without any change or alteration. It means that Christ's nature in his divinity or in his humanity has never changed. His office as mediator, as priest, he has an unchangeable priesthood, we learn. He ever lives to make intercession. As a king, Christ's kingdom is an everlasting, unchangeable kingdom. It has no end to it. Nations rise, nations fall. Kings are appointed, kings are brought down. Christ has an eternal, everlasting kingdom. He is always the same. There is no end. As a prophet, Jesus is an everlasting light to his people. Now, I don't fully understand everything about when we get to glory with Him. But He will always be an everlasting light. We're not going to get to glory and see Him face to face and say, and Jesus is going to change. He's not going to change. He's the same. What's going to change is you and I. Because now the Bible says we will be like him and we will see him as he is. Well, who has to change in order to see him and be like him? You and I have to change. And by the way, there will be no earthly change would be enough to allow us into his presence, even though we are being sanctified and being conformed in his image. We'll never change enough this side of glory to be exactly like him. But one day we will. Not becoming God, but we will be like Him. How? We'll be without sin. Corruption will now be gone. I don't know how this will play out, but I can't imagine, will we have a knowledge of what it was to be corrupted by sin to compare when we don't have sin anymore? Because we are, we are so blinded by the reality of the depths and the fingers of our sin and where it goes and, and how detestable it is that we don't fully understand just how bad sin is, even though we know about depravity. We don't see the full ramifications of what it's actually doing to us. And yet, one day, we will be changed. Just like this world will be changed. He gives an illustration here. He says, They they shall all perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. Very uh, picturesque uh, illustration being given here. He gives an example of a garment or clothing that in time it waxes or grows old. Clothing as it ages begins to lose its beauty it begins to lose its effectiveness it begins to to lose its usefulness and he's describing the heavens like a garment and like a he mentions in verse 12 and as a vesture as a as a, a curtain they lose their beauty the garment the curtain these things together, they will come to an end of their usefulness. They will no longer serve the same purpose that they want served. We read uh, back in one, Psalm 102, go to Psalm 104, and you can see where this is actually being referenced. Psalm 104. It's amazing to me how many times the writer of Hebrews referenced back to uh, the, the Psalms. And Psalms 104 is really a, a psalm about creation, the, the entire psalm. We could, we could read all of it, but let's look at the first verse. Psalm 104, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great, thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. Does that sound familiar? We read that a couple weeks ago. Who laid the foundation of the earth, that it should not be removed, notice this, forever. Thou covers it, covered it, covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled, at the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys into the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. That sounds like a promise it was made about the earth never being flooded again, isn't it? He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which... Sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. Drop down to verse 19. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are thy works, and wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And he goes on in verse 31, the glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. And you could just meditate on these on these psalms. And when you stop and you think about God and you think about all of this is being created by an unchangeable unchangeable God. But yet the beauty of these things, the the writer in Hebrew says they will wax old. And as a vesture they'll be folded up. This principle here is, is that as a Vesture folded up, they are going to be laid aside. They will not be used any longer in the manner in which they were being used for. We hear about the new heavens and the new earth, scripturally, right? They're not going to have the same purpose that they have now. There clearly is a new earth and a new heavens. It doesn't mean that they're going to completely burn away and go away in their actual substance, but the quality is going to change. It's a picture that we think about that as a vesture as a garment grows old they're folded up they're laid aside they're no longer used in the present all of us probably have clothing at home that has been laid aside at one point that was one of the greatest garments you ever bought and you've probably one time, there's a garment that you have had that you said, I have to have that garment. And as you got that garment, it was new. And as time went on, it got older and older and more ragged and more ragged and more ragged. And you said, this garment is no longer usable in the form it was once used. And you lay it aside or you give it away or you throw it away. It is now changed in its usefulness. The heavens display the glory of God. Creation demonstrates and screams even to the uh, self-proclaimed atheist. It screams to them, there's a God. No one is an atheist by nature. They refuse the creation and Romans says they are without excuse. You were not born an atheist. Atheism is of, of the most foolish of all beliefs. Because it has no basis of why you even believe what you believe. You have nothing you can point to to say, well, how did it get here? So nothing was created out of nothing. That's interesting. Yes, God created something out of nothing, but how does nothing create nothing? It doesn't. There's a God behind it. There's a God who created, and he says, all that I've created one day is going to be laid aside. And he says, they shall be changed, their form and their use. It'll be brought to a different usefulness. And again, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Think about it again, what he is saying. This is expressive of the immutability of Christ, his nature, his perfections, his person, his office, But also remember the virtue of his blood, his righteousness, his sacrifice. It has never changed. The requirement of a holy righteous God is only founded and found in the merits of Jesus Christ. It has always been. Even in the Old Testament, it was still the righteousness that only Christ could provide even though it was looking forward in time Salvation has always been the same. Yet, there are churches all over this world that you can go to that say Christ was not even around in the Old Testament. It's a false church, folks. Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. Christ is on every one of those creation psalms we just read. He was part of creation. No, we don't see the name Jesus Christ, but we see references to him. We see references to Messiah in Isaiah. We see references to this lamb who would come. We see him. And yet, this serves to remind us that he is the same. His years shall not fail. It reminds us to get our eyes off of the things of this earth and realize just how temporal this creation is. Listen, I am, I am as taken back by the beauty of God's creation as anyone else. There are certain things in life that if you ask me what's the best place I could go and just to enjoy the beauty of God, we all have our spot that we would say, that's where I would be. And for some of us, it's totally different. Some of us would say one season is more beautiful than another season. We would say, you know what? I, I just want every season to be fall. I want every season to be winter. And I say, what's wrong with you if that's you? But that's, that's another story. But it's still beauty. Why? Because God is his handiwork behind them all. But as beautiful as the temporal creation is, we are not to set our eyes on something that is going to change. I don't know how we would view God's creation through sinless eyes. But it's something I've thought a lot about. If we see the beauty of God's creation through eyes that still have sin in them, can you imagine looking at God's creation when we don't have sin anymore? The beauty that must be there. The great difference would be the beauty would not be so much in the structure that we're looking at or the body of water or the season, but it would be the beauty of Christ. You see the difference when you see creation through the eyes of an unchanging, immutable savior. Now you don't see creation for the beauty of just the object. You see the beauty of the creator, which I would submit to you even as believers today. Don't fall in love with the creation. Fall in love with the savior. Don't let the ocean draw you in as the beauty of the ocean itself being the beauty. It's the fact that it was created by an unchangeable God. And that one day, we're going to look upon things with sinless eyes. Our faith should be strengthened when we see and understand the temporal nature of this earth. Folks, don't set your eyes and don't set your feet and your tent pegs so deep that you fall in love with a creation that is going to change in its substance And it's going to change in its use. One of my fifth graders Friday also asked the question. We were talking about creation of man and the fall of man. And in an innocent voice, as innocent could be said. He wanted to know, why would God create people that he knew was going to sin? And then another kid raises his hand and he says, wait a minute. If I know I'm going to sin," And there's nothing I can do about it. Why try? And I answered the second question by saying, because God's commanded us to. And I went back to the first question and why did God create us? He created us to be reflection and a displayer of his glory. So that every believer who walks the face of this earth is a reflection of what Christ has done. We are to be a demonstration of the beauty of Christ in our life. And yet... Our faith ought to be encouraged when we see even this world with all of its trouble, with all of its struggles, because there's coming a day when it's all going to come to an end. Folks, don't don't let yourself be pulled down into the doldrums of an unbelieving society. Do not get caught up in every dark turn of the earth and of the world. You should expect this to happen. And every day something else takes a turn for the worse. Ought to be saying more and more, this world's going to change. And one day God is going to fold this up like a curtain, like an old garment. He's going to lay it aside. He's going to say, now I'm going to use it for a perfect purpose. And I can tell you then that will be a perfect display of his glory. His always the same. His years shall not fail. Verse 13, But what to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? We answer this question with a question. The question is, who did? When did he say this to the angels? Did he say to an angel, sit on my right hand? No, he never said that to any of the angels. He never designed to give the angels that kind of honor. That kind of authority. He never promised to the angels. He never gave it as a right of their job. He never called the single angel up to the, single, the highest place of dignity, which is at the right hand of the Father, which is occupied by whom? It's occupied by Christ. There is no angel that God ever said, come and sit on my right hand. He's never said to even the most recognized angel. He's never said to Gabriel, Gabriel, come sit at my right hand. Angels are created beings. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He's always been. He's worthy. He's immutable. Yet he said this to the Son. He said to the Son, You sit upon my right hand. And there he ever lives to make intercession. Psalm 110 speaks of the ruling power. It says, verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. I'm afraid sometimes we forget about the power of God. He speaks this to the Son. He has given to the Son power to judge, power to rule. And he ends this chapter with this thought. When we come to the conclusion that he did not say to the angels, sit on my right hand, but he does say, here's why I sent the angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Well, guess who the heirs of salvation are? That's all the elect. That's the believers. God's intended purpose for the angels was to be ministering spirits. They are spirits, servants to God. Servants to Christ. Ministering to God's people. The angels are inferior to the Son of God, but yet they are ministering spirits. This phrase, are they not all ministering spirits? It's a rabbinical Jewish phrase. And if you look into many of the Jewish writings, one commentator put it this way. He said they are referred to as the angels of ministry or the ministering angels. The Jews were very well uh, familiar with the importance of the angels. They're sent forth to do what? To minister for them. Who Who do the angels minister to? Those who are the heirs of salvation. Eternal salvation that is of eternal glory. These angels are there as ministering spirits and they belong to the children of God. They've been given to the heirs of salvation by the Father. Those angels have come through the very death of Christ. The angels are there to minister to us. They're sent forth by Christ the Lord and Creator of them. And this shows the care of God has for His people. Believer, have you really stopped to consider the love of Christ for you? I mean, honestly, stopped and really meditated on the love of Christ for you. All that He's done for you. Folks, to be honest with you, and this is not an emotional plea, It ought to overwhelm our souls to know all that has been done for us and to realize that every day, if he could change, we give him reason to change his covenants, to change his promises and say, you know what, you've overstepped the boundaries that I set for you one too many times. Can you imagine living your life saying, one more sin and God's going to disown me? One more sin and I'm no longer going to be a child of God? One more sin and I can no longer come before the throne of grace? That will never be the case because God can't change. Christ cannot change. The saints at present are heirs, but we have not fully come into possession of all that is awaiting us. Angels are sent to minister. They're sent to edify. They're sent to encourage. But we know that one day, even Scripture says, that the angels will be used to bring all the elect from all the corners of the earth. Christ Jesus, the creator of all things, he's unchangeable, the creator of the earth and the heavens. He's our redeemer, he's our mediator, he's our savior. He's sovereign over all things. Folks, these words set forth not only His unchanging deity, but His unchanging wisdom and His unchanging excellence. He's always excellent. He's always God. He's always eternal. Everything we see today in its present form will pass away. Everything. But one day, the curse will be removed. There will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth, purified and without sin. But Christ remains as he is. Always the same. Folks, never be ashamed of Christ and never be ashamed of what he's done. Set forth your hope in God that you can trust an unchanging God. I could never make a promise to you that I will never change. As a matter of fact, the only promise I can make to you is I will change maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. But we shouldn't be surprised that man changes because man is constantly changing. But let's take heart and be encouraged this morning knowing that Jesus Christ will never change. Christ is going to come again and when he comes again, he will make all things right and will make all things new. When this world continues to grow darker and darker, may it make us more watchful, more diligent, and realize that one day Christ is coming to fully conquer. And don't believe the lie that he's not in charge now. He's in charge. His time to return just hasn't arrived yet, but it's coming, it's coming. And if you have not repented of your sin and believed on Christ as the only remedy for your sin, the only means and way of salvation, I would beg of you to do that. Acknowledge that you are a sinner, repent of that sin, Call upon Christ, run to Christ, flee to Him. Beg Him to have mercy on you. There is no other way than through Christ Jesus alone. I hope we'll remember that. Let's close our time this morning singing the hymn on 154, Oh the deep, deep love. Let's stand as we sing. We'll sing this hymn as our close. And then we'll pray. And we'll be on our way this afternoon. Oh, the deep, deep love, hymn number 154.